As we return this week to 1 Peter, the letter of 1 Peter, uh, turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 6 through 9. I remind you this is God's holy and inerrant and infallible word. It is trustworthy uh, in its original autographs. It is without error. And uh, most certainly the Lord has spoken We believe in plenary verbal inspiration. Each word, every word, every jot and tittle is from the Lord. Let's hear God's holy word then. Beginning in verse 6. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. Obtaining is the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Let's pray. Well, Lord, we pray that you would equip and help us to understand your word. And we ask that you would help us to see wonderful things that will encourage our souls this morning. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen. Uh, Rovon Wells, who is uh, Tyree Nichols' mom, uh, you've heard her on the news this last week. And I heard her say something, and it, and it, it, it pricked me as, as to how relevant it was Uh, what she was saying in relation to our text this morning. She said, I I do know, as she's speaking about her son, that he was a good person and that all this, all the good in Tyree will come out. And so that's what's keeping me going because I just feel like my son was sent here on assignment from God. His assignment was over. It's over. And he was sent back home. And God is not going to let any of his children's names go in vain. So when all this is over, it's going to be some good and some positive. Now, now we can quibble over what she means and, and what, what, what define. Uh, I'd like a little bit more theological clarity there. But nonetheless, what she says is important for us, I think, to look at. And it's what all of us do when we experience trauma and trials and suffering in the world. And that is that after an immediate uh, response of grief, there is the soul's attempt to find meaning and purpose in trial and in suffering. And that's what exactly what she was doing. And she went, fundamentally, experiencing the death of her son, she went to God. I find that compelling. I find that telling as to the state of this woman and of her faith in Christ Jesus. It speaks well of that possibility. It speaks well of her speaks well of her family, and it speaks of hope with regard to her son. But it, it speaks of the Christian when we, dealing with trials and suffering, uh, begin at some point in that grief process to then look for meaning and purpose in our trials and our suffering. And when we begin to look for that meaning and that purpose in seeking God, when we go to God, the author of our faith, searching for, longing to find, searching over all of it, the muddled mess of our lives,
to look for God in the midst of it all. It's in the midst of grief, while seeking for hope, we find joy, reasons for joy. We may cling barely, but nonetheless, there is joy to be found in suffering. There is, there is a sense of purpose to be found in, in trials. Let's look at what happens. Let's look, let's look at what we can learn from this text this morning about this very subject as we take up the Apostle Peter's recounting of these words here in this passage or as he writes to this church. And we need to remember of where to where he is writing. Peter is writing to a people around 60 in his second letter in 68 AD. He's writing traditionally during from Rome, traditionally during... Nero's reign being crucified eventually as Jesus was, and he identifies himself as Peter in the very first sentence. We have no reason to question that as a time of great persecution during Nero's reign of terror. And he's writing to all the scattered persons in modern day northern uh, Turkey, from the, the west all the way to the east of that upper portion of Turkey. It's a sec, it's a circular letter. It's intended to be sent throughout the region and beyond. It's meant to be read and passed through church after church, house church after house church, person to person, for the purpose of strengthening the churches. And and so it's written to scattered peoples. He acknowledges that immediately. To those who reside as aliens scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, who are chosen. These are Christians and Christian churches throughout Asia Minor, and, and they're the elect of God. Even though they feel themselves to be utterly scattered, and in fact, detached from the larger church, the center of which was to be found in Jerusalem, they were far away from their base, as it were. And they're scattered, and they're discouraged, and they're experiencing persecution and suffering and trials, otherwise Peter wouldn't speak to the very subject. He's speaking to the subject because this is the condition in which they have found themselves to be. Of course, Peter is experiencing similar circumstances as well. So he has much to say. But these people are Christians. They are sojourners. They are elect exiles. But but they are believers and they are part of the church of God in all of its variegated makeup. And he's teaching believers about God. 39 times in throughout these five chapters, he'll speak of the living God, whose word stands forever, of the Father, holy, full of grace, the judge of all, the faithful creator. He'll speak about grace 10 times in five chapters. He, he's writing to the church, who he calls the family of God, the God's flock, servants of God, strangers in the world, elect exiles, the people of God. Make no mistake, he's writing to you. The Holy Spirit through Peter is writing to you, to the church, to the church in the midst of struggling and of trials and of suffering. The sufferings of Christ are very much part of his ongoing discussion too. What motivates a Christian more than to dwell for a moment upon the sufferings of Jesus Christ, who felt, who felt himself alienated, who cried out on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He'll refer to the sufferings of Jesus Christ, the Savior, at least 12 times throughout this book. 
So in the middle of this long sentence, verses 3 through 9, it's one long ongoing sentence. The Apostle Peter has begun that section first with all the indicatives of what we have in Christ Jesus. The things that are keeping us, the, the power of God that is preserving us. In this you greatly rejoice, he says in, at the beginning of verse 6. What is he referring to? In this you greatly rejoice. In what? Rejoicing in the midst of trials and distresses. How can they rejoice? In what can a Christian always continually, abidingly, without fail, rejoice in? What, what is always a source for joy for the believer? It's Well, it's all that divine activity that he just spoke of in verses 3 through 5. That divine activity that we, we remember where we were two weeks ago. You're greatly rejoicing that God your Father has caused you to be born again. And if you're not born again, you're not a believer. If you're not born again, you're not a Christian. If you're not born again, you're not going to heaven. If you're not born again, there is no purpose in your trials and sufferings, at least the purpose which Christians find in the midst of what we struggle with as we are connected to our Lord Jesus Christ and in union with Him. That He has caused us to be born again. That, that He by His almighty power has reserved an inheritance for you in heaven. That He is by that same power keeping it from perishing or from being defiled or fading. And that He's keeping you rooted in faith and will one day reveal all of this divine activity to you. And further, there is a glorious inheritance kept for you, reserved for you, that will be revealed to you in the future. And so Peter is calling for God's people to remember that. In this, you greatly rejoice. Peter is calling forth God's people to dwell upon the things of God, the work of God in their salvation, the future hope and blessing of what God intends, as he speaks of the revelation of Jesus Christ repeatedly throughout this passage. There is much for the believer to rejoice in. And so that's what brings us to our first point this morning. There'll be three, but the first of which is joy and distress in the Christian's life is always ongoing. There's always joy and distress in the Christian's life. Have you ever been to the headwaters or the, 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 the emptying out portion of the Mississippi River. It's a glorious river. It's huge. It, it flows very slowly but strongly. It's not horribly deep, but it flows. And it flows ongoing. And it flows all the way down into the Gulf of Mexico. And, and there it pours out. And where it pours out, it's a very muddy river by nature. It's very, very muddy. You do not see clearly through the Mississippi River. It's very different from the Connecticut River, the rivers we have here in New England. But with that, that very muddy water, it pours out into the ocean. And when it does, you see that muddy water pouring out into the clear ocean. And you see these, these two realities, the clear ocean and the very muddied Mississippi River that will eventually blend. But there is a clear contrast between the two. And so the Christian's life, according to this passage, is very, very much like that reality of two ex coexisting contrasts, two contrasting realities 
There is always room and cause for and search for and the finding of joy in the life of the believer. But there is also still that muddied, constant presence of grief, of trial, of suffering, of human response, of angst and overwhelming feeling of of being overwhelmed by that suffering and, and those trials that we face. And Peter says, well, in this, God causing us to be born again, reserving for us an unfading, incorruptible inheritance in heaven, causing us his power to be at work in us, promised to reveal to us the salvation that we have in Christ. In this you greatly rejoice, even though you may presently be grieved by various trials. You see, there's there's those two streams in contrast to each other. Mixing, but not truly mixing. Present grief and suffering. So that joy in what God has done for us, and I I would encourage you, Christian, is there not always to be found joy in in the work of salvation that God has caused to, to to spring up within us? Isn't there always, at the end of the day, in the most trying, most difficult circumstances, joy for the believer, I'm, I'm saved. I've been caused to be born again to a new and living hope. I have a Savior. I belong to God. There is much more to be revealed to me at the end of all things when Christ comes in glory. Christ is coming again. There is always reason for hope in the believer, even though our physical body is dying and coming to its end as as a usable, vibrant, living thing in this world. So Peter is writing to the church that is suffering and telling them, even in the midst of these great trials, these varied trials, these necessary trials, of which we'll speak of in a moment, nonetheless, you're greatly rejoicing. If we're not greatly rejoicing, if we're not exulting in God's mercy, I love the word that's used here in this passage, greatly rejoicing. It it has, it, it, it puts for us a, a vision of jumping up and down because of, we are so excited to receive something. Now, some of us are very staid in, in our character responses to, to one another. We can barely speak a word. We can barely lift a hand to wave. We, we barely respond to external stimuli. We barely smile even at the corners of our mouths. But this is what the Word of God says, that the Christian is always to be in a state of rejoicing. Rejoice again, I say, rejoice! So for the believer, we are always to have this this incorruptible, uh, unreachable center at the core of our being that is always in some way filled up with a sense of wonderment at what God has done for us and our not in in any way deserving the mercy that God has caused to fall upon our own heads, that we don't deserve God's mercy and yet we have received it, that Christ has died for us even though we, we have no right to it, that faith has been created in our heart even though 
we were rebels and and brigands and we were damned and lost and destined for everlasting hell. And so there is always this unreachable portion of ourselves that calamity and trial and suffering cannot ever change. I'm a child of God. I'm going to live with God. I've been given salvation. My sins are forgiven. I've been pardoned. I am free. The reign of sin is broken in me. I belong to my faithful Savior. And he to me. In this you greatly rejoice. And I don't want you to lose the present tense of that, ver- those, those verbs and uh, that phrase. In this you greatly rejoice. This is not something for a future exercise. It's not something that we're, we're putting away for a future moment when we get through the grief process or, or when we get over the anger or when we get through the frustration. It's not for a later exercise. In this you greatly rejoice. It's, it's for right now. It's for you in the midst of whatever you're facing. It's, it's where you need to be. It's where you need to get yourself to be. It's where you need to cry out to God. God, bring me out of this state of frustration and of fear and of utterly being overwhelmed and remind me what is more true than my circumstances, that I belong to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, body and soul. Christian always has this conflict of grief and of joy. The one perspective always looks at the flesh and life in this world, and and the other perspective always looks at what God is doing. And dear friends, we often need to take our eyes off of ourselves and what we are experiencing and feeling and put our eyes on what God is doing. There is a study of the human condition and a response to that study called mindfulness. There's nothing wrong with being mindful in the sense that, and of course, the Bible commands us to be mindful. All it's doing is, in using that word, we're simply being called to be aware of certain things. We're we're simply being called to take note of certain things, and that's all well and good. But mindfulness in the sense of being uh, open, which 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 is more of a, an Eastern sort of approach to the world of, of considering, of letting go of all judgments, and some judgments are very, very good. I know that I don't need to go to a, to a particular movie because of what's shown in that movie or what I might hear in that movie. My judgment is, therefore, I need not go to that movie. That's a good judgment. Good judgment is, well, I, I've got to be very, very careful about spending time with this particular person because they have an influence on me. What I need is more godly friends in my life, and I'm going to seek to spend more time with them. That's, that's making a careful, discerning judgment. I'm going to find the right kind of church that, that preaches the word, that whose people really genuinely care about me and, and love the Lord Jesus Christ and are imperfect but serving the Lord and trying to... Seek the Lord in the counsel of his whole will. There are right and good judgments to make. But mindfulness says I'm going to let all of them go, even the good stuff. I'm going to be open to and innocent about everything. I'm going to be curious and searching and engaged. Nothing can be judged. Nothing should be set aside. All is open to me. Oh, it's, 
it sounds nice, but it's a rejection of God's truth. It's a rejection of God's objective truth. It doesn't take God at his word. It refuses it. It says, well, God, you're wrong. It's, I should be open to the possibilities exactly like Adam and Eve were. Maybe what God said to you wasn't true, and God's withholding from you things which would benefit you. Keep a, a spirit of, of mindful curiosity about the world in which you engage. You don't need to listen to God's explicit commands. The Christian is to be mindful, yes, to engage fully with mindfulness, not with a curiosity about the world that forgets the judgments of God, but, but that is mindful of, always centered upon the word of God. Taking God at his word, appreciating what he says, storing his word in our hearts that we might not sin against him, being mindful of or returning in our memory to what God has written, what he has said, what he has established, and then determining by his grace to live therein. But we always have this conflict. We look at ourselves and our body and we look also simultaneously at what God is doing. The one brings joy and the other brings distress. <clears throat> and I know it's easy, nor is this any kind of a judgment. But when we grow, when the scales tip more toward what we are experiencing physically, we lose sight of what is the source of our joy. But when God in his grace enables us to think more deeply upon him and the scales become a little bit more in, in line with one another, this, all of this struggle and distress and trials and sufferings uh, take a little bit of a lighter hue and our joy becomes just a little heavier and a little bit more anchoring for us in our faith. This is part of the new birth. Because of the fall, through our struggle with sin, we continue to live in a world that is filled with sin and misery. Grief and greed and hatred and mistrust and, and even grief over our own particular trials. And we all experience various trials of various kinds. That word trials is not temptation. I know that there is some deviation between our verse, our translations, but the word is more explicitly trials in verse 6. Even though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been distressed by various trials. That's the word. What are trials? Well, I think in our passage here, there is some identity of what, what that may be, whether that's persecution. Or it may be the that we've been brought to our wits end uh, and we're filled with difficulty because we're raising our little ones and we've been sick for three weeks or four weeks or five weeks or six weeks. We've reached the end of our tether. We just can't go any further. When will it come to an end? Or when we feel our physical strength at an ebb or when we are tired, exhausted, overwhelmed, or when we've got some new diagnosis from the doctor or some new pain or some new source of anxiety or trouble, and we're overwhelmed by it. I hear the single bit of bad news, and I'll tell you, I, that ruins my week. It doesn't just sit with me for a few moments. 
I don't have the skill. I, I, I tend to think upon these things and, and to ruminate over them and to spend time thinking more deeply about them, how they're going to impact the rest of my life. And I begin to get feelings that nobody knows how I feel. No one else can identify with me. I'm all alone in my suffering. Why did God do this to me? Why now? Couldn't this wait until later in life when I'm not so vibrant? I need to be here for my family. There are trials of all kinds. You may go through a season of grave difficulty dealing with sin. When sin has come creeping into our lives, we thought we had conquered it, and here it is again. We are overwhelmed by it. We're filled with tears about it, but it's there. Or when we have sickness, when we are sick, sick again and again. Or physical weakness. Well, we've gone to the Word and we've prayed daily, but we find there's nothing there for us. We're experiencing something of the winter of the soul. We think upon God and there's there's no welled up feelings of love for God. We feel ourselves distant from Him. We, we feel an empty shell. We go to church. We go through the motions. But there's nothing there. You can say, Pastor, all you want, that I'm supposed to consider with joy all of my various trials, but I can't find joy under any rock or behind any tree. Trials are all the weeping and rejoicing that go on behind relationships and family and conflict and disagreements and anger and frustrations and hatreds, dislike, fights and contentions over resources and things, over property, over life, over decisions to be made, trials. When trouble comes at work and you didn't do anything, but there it is, or you're on the verge of being let go and you're fearful about what's next. We've all endured various things. I've endured a few. We had one baby. We had one on the way when Matthew was a little guy and I was laid off from work because I had a double inner ear infection and couldn't drive up to Vermont on that particular Saturday. I was in the bathroom and my, my, my boss looking at me rather than feeling compassion for my illness said, you're fired if you don't go up there. And I said, I can't drive. I can't stand. And then I wondered as I stood out by the highway waiting for my wife to put Matthew in the car and come and get me with her pregnant stomach and what are we going to do? Why Why now? Why would God do this to us now when I'm so in need and we have another child on the way and now am I supposed to feed our children and what are we going to do? What if the car breaks yet again? We've all had those moments, all of us. And usually one of the first things we ask is why? Why? What purpose is there in this? And that brings us to our second point from this passage this morning. And Secondly, the purpose of distress and trials. What, what purpose does it serve to make me go through a time of hand-wringing fear and anxiety. What purpose does God have in this? There's a wonderful line in the great hymn, O Love That Will Not Let Me Go. It says, O joy that seekest me through pain, 
I cannot close my heart to thee. I trace the rainbow through the rain and feel the promise is not vain that morn shall tearless be. The hymnist is thinking about who's experiencing great trials and suffering, and he's thinking about a future morning that will come when his tears will be wiped away. And that is his hope in the midst of pain and suffering. And that is where you and I are today, in that contrasting stream of clear water, of good moments, of ease and lack of trial, and that muddied water of trial and of suffering that are still mixing and swirling around one another in the course of our lives. And what does the hymnist do? Well, he says, I'm I'm going seeking. I can't close my heart to you. I trace the rainbow through the rain. I'm, I'm looking for that thread of hope that extends through all of my trying circumstances. And so Peter is he's talking about trials and suffering, and he says this, and it's curiously stated, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been distressed by various trials. So trials are of various nature. In other words, they're they're variegated. They come with many different colors. They're they are various in the sense that there could be a, a whole array of distressing trials that you may never struggle with or ever suffer from. But somewhere on that spectrum, there's something for you. All of us will experience in some way struggle, trial, distress, suffering. We may not experience all of it, and and that is a particular mercy of God, but we'll experience some of it. And so what do we do in the midst of all of this? The apostle says, little while. I find that difficult to take in, even though now, if necessary, for a little while. A little while. Really, I think these two words are a summary of of our lives. We are only here for a little while. Some country music song even says that we're only here for a little while. It's, It's a biblical idea, and it's true. And the Apostle Peter is telling us, reminding us, I think, in a good way, you're only here for a little while. This temporal body, this temporal experience of suffering and of trials and of difficulty is only present in you and with you. You're only in this and immersed in this for a little while. And we need to keep that perspective. The suffering I'm enduring, the difficulty of my life is only for a little while. It's only for a little while. Because I'm only here for a little while. In other words, it's not eternal. It's not going to go on without ceasing. It does have an expiration date, your your struggle with suffering and your difficulties. The trials that you endure, they will not always be. They will come to an end. They have an end date. They will not go a day beyond it, nor a moment beyond it. Nor will they extend these trials and sufferings that you endure. Nor will they extend in any way past God's purposes. It's a little while. It's a little while. We should take comfort in that as Christians, shouldn't we? The things I'm experiencing, the things that cause me such anxiety, they're only they're only for a little while. 
The believer can say that because we know that we are only in this world for a little while, and then after that, we are destined for everlasting life. We are going to be with the Lord for all eternity. And so we can look at our present trials and say, even if I live to 90 or 100, God help me, even if we live to 100 years old, it's only a little while. It's only a little while. Isn't that a great comfort to your soul this morning? That no matter how painful the anxieties and the troubles that you struggle with, they're only for a little while. They're only for a little while. So here's a little while in direct comparison to eternity. Eternity. It's just a little while. Even though you may experience, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials. Those various trials will not go on eternally. They have an end date. They have an expiration date. And right now what you're suffering is only for a little while. It's just a little while. It's also necessary, he says it, he strings together in this long sentence a number of things. Even though now, for a little while, if necessary, you've been distressed by various trials. What about the trials I face is necessary? <clears throat> what makes my, my 15th car repair in the last 12 months necessary? What makes this conflict in my family that I thought that we had dealt with necessary? What makes my continued struggle with this inherent sin necessary? What makes my distress and anxiety necessary in the mind of a good God? Necessary. How could suffering ever be necessary? We, we have this inner conversation. Even if we don't dialogue with God because we, we know it's wrong, we're thinking it though, this is not fair. This is not fair. It's not fair. Why is it happening to me? Why now? We question the timing. We question the presence of it. We question the fairness of it all. Why is God going so hard after me now with these trials? Why now when I'm already dealing with this and this and this? Why bring this other thing into my life and cause even more distress and trial for me? Doesn't the psalmist in two different psalms say, Lord, turn in Psalm 38, Lord, turn your gaze away from me for a season, lest I die. He's asking the Lord, just, just, will you turn away from me for a bit? Take your, take your gaze off of me so that I, I may live because I feel myself dying underneath your immediate and oppressing glance. What's necessary about it? Well, we have to affirm <clears throat> that in suffering and trials, there is a necessity, a divine necessity to them. This necessity arises from the eternal counsel and plan of God to mold you after his will, to make you more like his son, to make you more of a thoughtful, faithful, grateful, joyful Christian. Some of you have come from a week of calamity and of difficulty. Some of you have experienced trials this last week, various necessary trials. How did you respond? Did you respond in prayer and say, Lord, will you show me, will you show me this week what you intend for me through this? 
Lord, I'm asking you to give me a sense of your purpose in my trials. Lord, will you help me to find joy in the midst of my trials and suffering? Lord, show me how to do this. Show me, show me how this in some way necessarily completes your purpose for me. Or did we just hold our breath, our collective breath, until we were past the immediate, the immediacy of the, of the trial and give thanks to God after we were done and just move on? You know, if we don't learn what God intends for us in the midst of our trials and suffering, doesn't that mean that our Heavenly Father is going to have to show us in some new and fresh way the lesson he intends for us to come to know? It's like with our children, isn't it? When, when we are trying to teach our children something, we put them in a situation where they can choose to obey mom and dad or disobey. And, and so if they don't get the lesson, what are we going to do? As a good father or a good mother, we're going to teach them that lesson. And so we'll bring them into another situation where we'll be watching yet again to make sure, ultimately, that they are going to learn that lesson. We don't say, oh, they didn't learn the lesson in this immediate circumstance, so I'm just going to let it go. It's really not necessary that they learn not to touch a hot stove. I'll just let it go. No, as good mothers and fathers, we'll seek to, in some way, teach them that lesson when the need arises. And so... It's a very unloving thing if we don't teach them that lesson. In suffering and trials, there is something deeply comforting in knowing that there is a divine necessity in what we endure. Have you not come to the full recognition of the fact, if you haven't, you need to today, you would not be who you are if God didn't send what he has sent into your life. I'm convinced of the fact that I wouldn't be a pastor if God hadn't brought various trials into my life early on. That if he didn't cause me to struggle with the concept of faith, if God didn't bring me into a season of loneliness as a young man, if all the circumstances of my family life and of, of, of conflicts and people around me and my place in the church, that all those things were used by God necessarily for my good in order to move me to where he wanted me to be. You are what you are today. You are who you are today here in this place precisely because of the necessary trials that God has used purposefully in your life to make you what he intends to make you. You would not be here today were it not for that very molding, crafting work of God. And here is the great comfort that our tears are kept in his bottle. None are ignored. You and I, we are never overlooked. There is an unchanging disposition that is always present in our lives, that none of our sufferings are purposeless, none of our sufferings are unfruitful, that they are necessary. They're necessary. I'm convinced that without various trials in my life, I would be far more arrogant. I would be far more prideful. I would have committed far more egregious sins against you as a church, against my wife and my children, were God not having been 
in an ongoing way, present in my life, bringing trials and, and, and teaching me through seasons of temptation and struggle and of suffering. The Lord has such purposes for each and every one of us. God is accomplishing his purposes for you. They're greater than what you and I desire for ourselves. If we were left to our own devices, we would be perfectly happy to be just good enough to get into heaven. Just, just, just conformed enough to the image of Jesus Christ to get past the gate. And some of us, we joke about that. Well, I'm going to just get my foot in. I'm just going to squeeze around the door and get in. But that's not what God has for you. He intends for far better things for you and for me. None of us will be standing ashamed before the judgment seat of Christ. Not a single one of us. If we are the children of God, we will accomplish all his perfect and holy purposes for us. And we will stand resplendent before the very face of our Savior. And we will do so because God has brought necessary trials and suffering and into our lives and circumstances that have molded us and made us into the image of his son. Where do you most grow? Where does encouragement most grow in the midst of trials or on the days filled with sunshine and good things and rich desserts and all the the good stuff of life? Trials and suffering, the crucible of faith, but they are also the place where faith is refined as gold through fire. In other words, there is a purification that must take place in the life of the believer. The proof of our faith must be proved out before God. It must be burnished and strengthened and made more beautiful for the sake of glorifying our Savior in the last day. It must be tested by fire. It's painful to be a Christian. It's painful to be a Christian who endures necessary trials in the Christian life. But, but there is purpose in it. And it is necessary. And there's comfort in knowing it's necessary that I endure through these trials. Because trials and suffering produce endurance. And I need endurance if I'm ever to reach eternal life. If I'm ever to reach the throne room of my God, if I'm ever to get there, not, not that I'm, I'm not using language of somehow achieving something, but I'm using language of endurance that brings us through this life and proves out the perseverance of the saints and shows that we have been preserved through the power of God and even, yes, through necessary trials. John Newton was a wonderful Christian man. He had a godly mother. He died when he was seven. His father was not so godly. He took him on the sea when he was 11 years old. He lived a licentious and tumultuous life, sailing on ships and sailing into various ports. He was flogged. He was made captive. He was a slave trader eventually, and eventually he himself nearly drowned. He became himself a slave. And then he married... Mary Catlett, a godly woman with whom he was friends. He read Thomas Akempis' Imitation of Christ. He gave up the slave trade. He became friends with Wilbur, William Wilberforce. He became an, a, a faithful advocate for uh, an ardent ab- abolitionist. 
he eventually became a tide surveyor and entered eventually into the ministry. His first attempt to preach, he went up into the pulpit and then he was so afraid, and yes, it is a fearful exercise, that he left the pulpit and left that day and couldn't return. He was so afraid to preach. He was a man who suffered greatly throughout the course of his life. And he records this prayer in the midst of his only hymns, which was one of the most productive times in his life of writing Christian verse. And he wrote it with um, his friend, uh, whose name escapes me at the moment, but uh, uh, who William Cowper, pardon me, who was a man who tried to take his life eight different times. And they wrote together, and John Newton writes this, I asked the Lord that I might grow in faith and hope and love and every grace might more of his salvation know. That's, that's something every Christian asks. And seek more earnestly his face. And t'was he who taught me thus to pray, and he I trust has answered prayer, but it has been in such a way as almost drove me to despair. I hope that in some favored hour at once he'd answer my request and by his love's constraining power, Subdue my sins and give me rest. Instead of this, he made me feel the hidden evils of my heart and let the angry powers of hell assault my soul in every part. Yea, more, with his own hand, he seemed intent to aggravate my woe, crossed all the fair designs I schemed and humbled my heart and laid me low. Lord, why is this? I trembling cried. Wilt thou pursue thy worm to death? Tis in this way, the Lord reply, I answer prayer for grace and faith. These inward trials I employ from self and pride to set thee free and break thy schemes of earthly joy that thou mayest find thy all in me. To break thy earthly schemes or to break thy schemes of earthly joy, to set thee free from self and pride. As a Christian, all I can do in response to such a statement is, Lord, if if I have to endure trials and difficulty and anxiety in order to make me more like you, and in order to break my earthly schemes and break my pride, then, Lord, with quaking voice, I say, do it, but give me the grace to endure. The Christian will say, I understand the necessity of my trials. I understand the necessity of it. It's to, to break my love of the world. It's, it's to lead me away from my from from my embrace of this world and to lead me to to embrace Christ more faithfully, to break my pride and self-satisfaction, to break my intentions of earthly schemes of earthly happiness. Thirdly and finally, as we conclude, joy can be found in distress. And I want to answer that question, where joy can be found in distress. Part of the human condition and our trouble is we want redress, suffering and tr- struggles and trials. We want relief. We drink. We, we pursue satisfaction and pleasure. We, we look for all sorts of self-inebriating ways in which to make ourselves feel better. And we know all sorts of innocent ways in which we can make ourselves feel better. Go on holiday. 
go out for a vacation, go out to eat, uh, sit back with that awesome drink, uh, a cup of coffee, whatever it may be. There are good things that God gives us to enjoy in this life that are not in and of themselves evil. But if we if we look to these things as our source of self-care and ultimately hope in them and don't in any way seek the Lord. If my intention after a difficult day in dealing with strife and after coming up with conflict between my wife and I is to sit down in my office and say, you know what I really need right now? I don't need anything. All I need is a good cup of coffee. You see, there's nothing wrong with a cup of coffee, but there's something deeply wrong in my approach. What I'm saying is, I don't need prayer right now. I don't need reconciliation. I have no intention of asking for forgiveness. I have no intention of humbling myself. What I want to do is just make myself feel better. And so what I've done is, I've deified myself, and I'm I'm worshiping myself rather than the Lord. I'm not trying to do what honors God, nor... Am I trying ultimately to serve him? We want, we want relief. We do all the things that Solomon speaks about in Ecclesiastes. He pursued pleasure and wisdom. He pursued every wanton pleasure of every kind. He, he came to the conclusion ultimately that there is nothing for men to do except to take the joy that God gives him in the midst of his calamities and trials. That it is a gift of God that he gives us joy even in the midst of difficulty. So what we need to do as Christians is to pick back through the suffering. To go back into what grieves us and to look for through the lens of grace and of a Godward perspective without complaint or judgment considering what God is doing and to look for that clear divine necessity and to say, aha, I see why you sent this into my life. Now I get it. And we had a call to mind, verses 3 through 5. God's power is at work in me. He's kept, he, he is preserving and keeping from fading this inheritance that he has promised for me. His power is keeping me, is guarding me. He has caused me to be born again. There is always reason for joy in the Christian life. There is always cause for rejoicing, no matter what happens to us physically or mentally. Have you considered what God is doing? Have you called to mind God's work on your behalf? Our great need, dear friends, is to look less at this world and more at the next, to consider God and his character more than my personal relief and happiness. We've heard it said, and it remains true, God is less concerned with your physical happiness than he is with your soul's Holiness. He is more concerned about your holiness than he is about your physical satisfaction. Although, God delights to give us good things. He is a good and gracious Father who does satisfy our soul with good things. But God's intention is to make you holy. And joy is not, remain, is not reserved for heaven, ultimately. It is not just a future perspective, but it is a present reality, too, for the believer who loves God and who sees the handprint of God upon their lives. Goes back looking and says, Lord, show me where the divine necessity is for this great trial. 
We need greater biblical clarity so that we can see Jesus more vividly than our daily trials. Are you looking for Jesus? Are you looking for Jesus? Have you seen him in the midst of your trials and suffering? Have you seen him in this world, in your life, in the daily mercies, in the momentary encouragements, in that spiritual warmth of his nearness? It's striking to me as a, as, a, as a Christian father and as a grandfather now. I could look at my life and complain about various things and complain about various trials that Christine and I have endured in the last few years. But I also see the resplendent provision of God in two grandchildren. I see the resplendent provision of God in keeping our children around us. I see the resplendent provision of God in faithful, godly people who minister to our souls, whose love is real and genuine and continuing, even despite my imperfections and sinfulness. I I see a, a church embracing God and his purposes and the word of God and delighting in one another and showing Christian love to their communities and families. I see children who love us. I hear the word of God faithfully. I read the word and God ministers to my soul. My wife loves me and I love her. There is so much to rejoice over because God has done it. And the Lord has given it to me. And the Lord has provided. It makes those trials that I go through, it it gives me a perspective of thanksgiving. Thankfulness to God. Of a willingness, even without knowing, to entrust my future and my life into the hands of my faithful creator. It gives me an understanding of the necessity of what I endure in this life. And it reminds me that even though I don't see Jesus, even though I've never seen him, nevertheless, despite all of that, I see him in my life. I see him in you. I see him all around me within the Christian community. I see him at work in my soul. And so I know ultimately that my life in its sum total will be to behold the glory of my Savior and will in some way serve the purposes of glorifying my Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. May God give us a sense of this as we endure through various trials. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we pray that you would help us in the midst of our trials to see their necessity. And even when we we fail to understand completely, and when we are not given an answer, we pray, Lord, that you would give us a settled, calm faith in our God that this is good, that this is necessary, that ultimately it serves your purposes, and that you, O oh God, see and know. We thank you for a Savior who can sympathize with us in our weaknesses, who knows our frailty, who is mindful that we are dust. We give thanks to you for Jesus, our faithful, sympathetic high priest and Savior. We ask, Lord, that you would give us the grace to endure day by day. And we ask that you would forgive us of our sins. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.